This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Place to be Nation, welcome back to another edition of Making Mount Rushmore here on the PTB Pop Experience. I am your host slash moderator slash panelist for this episode, Steve Riddle, and it's going to be kind of a, I don't want to say a little quickie episode, because it is just the two of us um, and my uh, guest that I have on with me. He's been on before. It's um, been actually quite a while since he's been on, but I'm always glad to uh, have him on whenever. Uh, That is Mr. Ashley Cruz. Ashley, how are you, sir? I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Like I said, it's been a while. I think the last time you were on was um, when we did the, I think it was when we did the Super Bowl halftime shows and commercials, which was I think almost two years now. So yeah, yeah it's been quite a while. Right, January course, last year, I believe. Yeah, and the court. Well, I remember that episode. That was when uh, I had no voice, so I was uh, struggling to get through that one. But uh, but uh, but um, obviously I have a much clearer voice this time. So. Um, but like I said, it is, this is going to be a good episode. Of course, it is October, so we are talking all things uh, spooky and uh, hot and scary. Uh, so we are going to be discussing for this episode Halloween songs and horror films. Uh, this, of course, I um, think this is definitely a good little topic to talk about because um, there have been some pretty good uh, choices for both of these. Um, so for the first half here, we're going to start with the Halloween songs. Um, and actually, I will go ahead and let you give your first pick on your Mount Rushmore for Halloween songs. Okay, um, well, I'm probably going to go with the big one right off the top, which would be uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Um, I think I think my criteria that I used for picking these is basically songs you would expect to hear at a Halloween party, basically, and I, especially, you know, the extended version with Vincent Price's um, monologue and all that, the the funk of 40,000 years and all that. It's just, it's just really seasonal. You know, we have the classic uh, music video that's very horror themed. So, I mean, can't go wrong with this tune at Halloween time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I had it on my Mount Rushmore as well. Cause I mean, when you think Halloween songs, this is the first one you think of, obviously it's just so such an iconic song. Um, just, everything from like the beat to, to Jackson's lyrics. Um, like you said, Vincent Price. Um, and then of course, obviously, you know, the music video, which I mean, it, it's not really, you know, you can't really say music video. It's more like, it's basically a short film in essence, which was right. you know un, unheard of for that time. Um, I know it got a lot of, you know, it's obviously gets, you know, played every year at, at Halloween for a while. I, I do remember watching it on MTV on Halloween. Um, yeah. I mean, there's really nothing much more you can say. It is the quintessential, um, the quintessential Halloween theme, uh, Halloween song. It's, you know, easily, you know, one of Michael Jackson's biggest hits of all time. So, um, Absolutely, yep. mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I will go ahead and give my next pick here. And this is another song similar to um, to Thriller, where it's uh, kind of almost a um, a given that this song would be considered on a Mount Rushmore for Halloween songs. And that is, of course, The Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Keepers. Uh, this song, of course, came out in um, in 1962. Uh, it was uh, influenced from uh, from Boris Karloff's portrayal of Frankenstein 
and it's just one of those just you know really fun type of songs i mean uh pickett does a really nice job portraying you know kind of setting the atmosphere and it's you know the the background chorus and hearing all the the, the different uh characters that show up for this little party um I, I i do find it interesting that the song actually originally came out in august of that year so it didn't even come out in october but it did um it did obviously chart number one in october that year so it, so it it does have that but um but again kind of the kind of like you said how you know when you go to a Halloween party, what are the songs you expect to hear? And I think this is definitely one of those uh, songs you always expect to hear at a Halloween party um, to the point that you have it on your Mount Rushmore as well. Yes. Uh, uh, it's basically a no brainer. Yeah. To be in the top four. Um, it's gotta be like one of the most famous novelty songs, I guess, of all time, just that seasonal, you know, theme, um, Especially, and he does, you know, evoke Boris Karloff, yeah, on, uh, in the verses, and it's just a fun song. It's it's silly. It's just, you know, a bunch of monsters dancing around, having a good time, and what's not to love about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, just I, I, one of my favorite lyrics is as when uh, Dr- uh, Boris sings about how Dracula is upset that uh, nobody's doing the, the uh, what is it called, the Transylvania twist. Uh, because it's now, because it's now the monster mash, but um, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know why that line, that that line sticks out to me, but for some reason it, it does. But but yeah, again, just the, you know, and again, like you said, it's you know when you think about novelty novelty songs, this is definitely probably one of the top ones. So okay, well uh, we're moving a uh, little we're moving uh, briskly along here. So why don't you go ahead and give us the next entry on your Mount Rushmore of Halloween songs? Okay, for my third. A pick for Halloween, you know, you're gonna think of ghosts at this time of year, something spooky. And I had to go with um, the Ghostbusters theme song by uh, Ray Parker Jr. It's uh, it's not scary or any, by any sense of the imagination, but it's it's got a great beat, uh, similar, you know, to Thriller, um, and of course. The, the history of it, allegedly, is the movie makers wanted to get uh, Huey Lewis in the news is uh, I Want a New Drug for uh, the song featured in the movie. So they went to Ray Parker Jr. to and they said they wanted a song like that. And I guess he took it to mean we just need to copy that song almost exactly, which is what they got. But it's still... I I would argue it's a more famously known song than the Huey Lewis one, um, and got great lyrics. Who are you gonna call? I don't. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Um, and it's from an all-time classic movie as well. So I had to put it on my list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we are actually uh, we're three for three because I had it on my Mount Rushmore as well. Um, Again, like you said, just such an iconic song from such an iconic movie. Um, you know, Ghostbusters was just so hot, you know, when it came out in the in '84, um, and then you had the the song on top of it, and again, you know, the video got a lot of airplay. You had all the cameos from all the different actors. Um, like you said, just so many quotable lyrics in there. You know, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Uh, who are you gonna call Ghostbusters? Um, and yeah, it is kind of interesting the whole. Um, 
the controversy between you know how closely that and I want a new drug are pretty much together. Um, it's it's just, it is kind of interesting how that happened, you know, how that went that way. And uh, there've actually been quite a number of uh, um, re, uh, re, um, remixes of it or other versions of it. I know like Run DMC did one for the second Ghostbusters film. Um, and there were a couple of other different uh, versions of it, but I think um, you'll definitely when you think of Ghostbusters, um, you'll always think of the uh, other Ray Parker Jr. Um, version and from the original film. So um, no doubt this definitely also I think what a lot of people would probably have it on their Mount Rushmore. So. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I will go ahead and give my last pick on my Mount Rushmore. I think this is the finally where you and I might uh, differ a bit. Um, for my last one, I went with another kind of interesting, um, kind of iconic 80s song um, that got a lot of airplay when it did, um, and that's "Somebody's Watching Me" by Rockwell. Um, of course, uh, Rockwell, the, the Rockwell, of course, the uh, the son of Barry Gordy, um, and this was obviously you know his biggest hit and is really his only hit. Um, he was obviously one hit wonder. Um, another pretty memorable video where he's like in his house and he's pretty much, you know, at the peak of paranoia thinking somebody's out to get him. Um, again, just an iconic beat to it. Um, and again, and I mentioned this um, before in a previous Mount Rushmore, the fact that, you know, they brought Michael Jackson in to be the background vocals for the song, um, you know, it was kind of an, it was a big deal. And I know uh, Jackson actually, um, Kind of played, kind of played low key. In fact, kind of denied that he was involved with it because uh. he wanted, because he didn't want, he didn't want to take any of the, the, um, take any of the focus off of Rockwell since it was his song in essence. Um, <laughs> but it's funny, it's like at one point, because I, I was listening, because I, you know, listened to the song, and if Jackson wanted to make himself conspicuous, he didn't do a good job. Because at one point, he threw in a hee hee. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, it's like everyone's got to know who that is, but. Well, it's um, like the, the choruses are like. Pretty much all Michael Jackson aren't. I don't even know what Rockwell is singing on the chorus or not. Michael so yeah, so it, with his voice there. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, and um, and I do, and of course I do remember. Um, I think it was like in the mid two thousands. Um, the song kind of got a little bit of a of a comeback because it was featured in um in a bunch like a bunch of Geico commercials. It was it was like those ones where it's like the big the stack of money with the googly eyes and they would play the song in the background. So got a little bit of a reaper from there. But um but yeah when you think just again when I think this is another one when um when you think of Halloween songs, this is one that I think comes to mind. At least for me at least. So um did you have anything else to say about this song? Um I mean it's a it's a classic song and I can see it being on a list. I, I think I probably contemplated that one because I was, you know, looking at different lists online trying to jar my memory to to come up with something good uh, for the list and i don't know i i guess i never really equated it that closely with halloween with even with the theme um i think it's um almost like uh the police song um the stalker song so <laughs> oh every breath you take Yes, I was having the, yeah, every breath you take. I kind of equated it similar to that, I guess, and I, I wouldn't consider that song a Halloween song either. So, <laughs> so, uh, but I, I can't fault your pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's probably not, you know, the first one everyone think, would think of. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some some people thought that same way. So, um, well, you have one entry left on your Mount Rushmore, so why don't you go ahead and give it to us? Yes, so and this fourth one is the one that I 
debated the longest. The first three were like just guaranteed. And I looked at a few different ones to fit in here. So then I was thinking about songs that have been routinely featured in horror movies, I guess, kind of loosely tie the two <laughs> Mount Rushmore lists together. But uh, I went with uh, Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. Um, it's, you know, famously, it's, fe it's featured in uh, the original Halloween. Um, I think it's in the original Scream movie. I think it's in Zombieland. Um, so it's had a lot of high-profile features in, in horror movies. And, you know, it's, you know, talking about dying. So uh, what better thematically to tie into Halloween than Don't Fear the Reaper? As you get that haunting vocal, the classic guitar riff, the, the, the crazy freak-out break, uh, breakdown in the middle where everything goes haywire. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a classic song. I, I thought it fit uh, this list pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, I kind of debated this one back and forth. Um, it does have that kind of feeling of eeriness to it. And, you know, yeah, I mean, like you said, it is featured in um, some good horror films. I think uh, actually uh, Stephen King said that it was um, it was his inspiration for um, for the stand. Um, oh, wow. For when he read that, wrote that. So um, that's kind of, you know, kind of cool little nugget there. But um, yeah. I, I mean, for me, I, at least, obviously, I'll always remember the song for the fact that, you know, it makes everybody want more cowbell. So. <laughs> right. You have the SNL tie-in, yeah. yeah. That's kind of like superseded a lot of uh, that song in, in pop culture uh, for the last, whatever, 25 years or however long it's been since that sketch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, only Christopher Walken can make a quote, quote like, I got a fever. And the only prescription <laughs> is more cowbell. Make that sound credible. So, right. um <laughs> But yeah, that's I, I mean, but um, but yeah, like you said, this is definitely um, you know, has plenty of tie-ins to the horror films, and um, and like I said, it just kind of you know, it it has that kind of feeling of you know, or of horror and uh, that mysterious kind of you know feeling to it. So I definitely um, I can see why you uh, put it on your um, your Mount Rush. When I actually did have it, I, I mentioned it just missed my cut, but I actually did have it as an honorable mention. So, um, okay. um. But with that said, uh, speaking of honorable mentions, we'll now go ahead and um, kind of discuss those um, if we have any. So um, why don't you go ahead and give us um, give us one of your honorable mentions? Okay. Um, the first one was, um, I guess, the Time Warp from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, it's a pretty iconic song that's it's been recreated on sitcoms and other TV shows over the years. It's been, you know. If you go to a screening, a midnight screening, people dress up and act it out when it's when it's time to do the time warp again. Um, so it's it's a very seasonal Halloween themed, just a silly song that um, I think that was his background was was musical theater uh, prior to doing the movie. So it it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, I can't. I don't think I've ever seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's one. It's on my. It's on my. You know, list of films I do want to watch at some point. So um, I can't say I'm too familiar with the song, but um, 
but knowing the obviously the um how memorable the, sh- the movie is um i think i can definitely uh, see why it would uh be included so i will uh, definitely uh, have to look into that one if the way to experience the movie if you've never done it is go go to a midnight show and just experience it because everybody dresses up they all act out the lines in the crowd as the movie's playing i mean it's i did it in college and it was quite the experience (laughs) (laughs) all right well i'll definitely uh keep that in mind i don't know how many uh theaters around here would be doing a showing of it but i'm you know you never know um all right, well, I'll uh, give one of my uh, honorable mentions as well. And this song is um, also from a film, uh, from one of my all-time favorite films growing up and still to this day. Um, from The Nightmare Before Christmas, I went with This is Halloween uh, by the Citizens of Halloween Town. Um, I think it's just a really fun song just to kind of open up the film. Uh, you get all the introduction to all the big characters. Um, the the atmosphere is just so amazing. You see the uh, great you know cinematography and the, you know, the stop motion animation just really, you know, just blows your mind away, especially for uh, for 93 uh, when it first came out. Um, and of course, I know, you know, the big debates always is the Nightmare Before Christmas, a Halloween, a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie. But I think there is no uh, question about it, you know, where this song falls into place in terms of the two holidays. So um, I, think it's, I think it's kind of both. <laughs> But I mean, I mean, it does, you know, I guess it's, I mean, it depends on the time of the, you know, what you're feeling. I know, right. at least for me, when I was working in, um, with Regal, whenever they would do re-releases of Nightmare Before Christmas, they always released it in October. So I always okay. took it at my, my end as a Halloween film. So, but again, it's, um, you know, I know, like I said, some people do see it as a Christmas movie. Um, so, I mean, it could work, it works either way. So, yeah, that's really, I mean, that's just a perfect marriage of Danny Elfman doing songs for Tim Burton, either directed or produced films. It's just, they're, they're both really quirky, wacky guys. So it, it meshes together so, so well. So he has, he has a way with those unique songs. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Why don't you give us uh, another album mention? Okay. Um, well, I went with the Halloween theme by John Carpenter. Um, it's just, you know, a very simplistic, you know, couple, two or three beats on the on the piano keys, but it's so iconic. And when you hear that, you know, something bad is about to happen. Um, it's just uh, one of, from one of my favorite movies, which we might talk about later. Uh, spoiler, but. Um, yeah, it's just it's just such an iconic uh, keyboard riff. I don't know if you can have a riff on a keyboard. I don't know a, a run, whatever. But uh, the the music is very memorable and very creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I definitely agree. And I had it as an honorable mention as well. I mean, in terms of like you know horror theme songs, it's you know like you said, it's probably the most recognizable one. Just that like you know that da 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 da. It's just you know it just sets the tone so well for that film. And um and like you said, whenever you hear that that theme, you know something you know something's about to go down. So um definitely very very iconic. So I think that Carpenter's father was a professor. Of music, so I think he had always had like one foot with the in the music interest while still pursuing directing. So he was always making music. Um, 
and manage to time together. So. All right. Well, uh, I'll go ahead and give another uh, honorable mention for me. Um, and I went with um, Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads. Um, oh, another, nice. Yeah, another just kind of, you know, kind of really kind of, you know, creepy kind of song. Um, so, you know, the lyrics are about, you know, the, you know, supposedly about the thoughts of a serial killer. Um, again, it was, you know, it was featured on the soundtrack for Stranger Things. Um, mm. It was also, it also actually made an appearance in a uh, Treehouse of Horror episode too. So again, kind of the little, uh, the Halloween tie in there. Um, and again, just one of those, those songs that's just, you know, you hear that, you know, that, you know, the beat and the, the lyrics, it just really kind of, uh, you know, just takes you into that whole, you know, that whole, like that whole vibe of uh, the creepiness that it invokes. So um, did you have anything else to say about that song? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I'm in a band and we, and we cover this song uh, when we play out mm. live. Uh, I'm a big fan of it as well. So uh, we kind of, we kind of do a little mashup with LA woman at the end of it and then kind of <laughs> go back in because they just kind of line up. But um it's a great song, and yeah, I can't fault you for that pick either. Yeah, definitely. Okay, um, why don't you give us another honorable mention? Okay. Um, I went with Red Right Hand from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, which if I say the name of it, you may not know, but if you've seen any of the Scream movies, it's basically the theme song <laughs> to, to the Scream movies. Um, it's the it's a very weird kind of gothic, strange tune, but it, it fits so well. It's very creepy. Um, the way he sings is is it's just very interesting. Mm, yeah, this one um, I I you know I'm not I'll, I'll, you know I I don't, can't recall seeing any of the screen films, so I might have missed this one, but um. But yeah, just kind of looking up, looking at it right now, it's like you, you like you said, yeah, it's featured in all of those. I actually, made a couple of other films. Um, it was also in Hellboy. Um, it was in a couple of uh, TV shows, so it definitely, um, it definitely gets around. So um, <laughs> I will, uh, yeah, I'll definitely. So I, I will definitely um, take your word for it. Of, uh, I mean, if it's if it's you know heavily, I mean, if it's heavily featured, like you said, in the in a franchise, then it definitely, um, you know. It definitely has its place. Yes. All right. Well, I will uh, go ahead and give uh, another one of my honorable mentions, and this is another song that's featured in a um, in a film, and another one that I really enjoyed um, when it first came out, and that is uh, from the film Hocus Pocus. Um, I went with "I Put a Spell on You" by Bette Midler. Uh, this, of course, is the song that uh, that she sings when she uh, basically curses all the parents um, in the town to uh, to basically dance until they die, and it's uh, pretty much just you know a good showcase for uh, for Miller. Um, and again, I just I love the first Hocus Pocus when I was growing up. Um, I haven't seen the the newer one, you know, as of yet, but um, but I when I think of when I think of Hocus Pocus, I definitely think back to this to the original, and then obviously you know this is one of those uh, the trademarks of the film. So, um, have you ever seen Hocus Pocus? I actually have not ever seen Hocus Pocus, so I'm gonna have to take your word on that. I am not a fan of Bette Midler or Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, I like Kathy and Jimmy from King of the Hill, but um, 
I have never had any interest to watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's yeah it's i mean it's not everybody's cup of tea it's definitely one that it's definitely got a lot of uh it's very campy and um some of it can be kind of hit or miss with people so like i don't um so it's you know i guess i could see why probably you wouldn't wouldn't like it (laughs) okay well i think you have one honorable mention left so why don't you let us know what it is oh yeah i mean this one's pretty iconic i mean i think it probably Almost made the top four, but it's the Adams Family theme song. I think everybody has heard it, um, attempted, you know, to redo the lyrics with the snaps and everything, and um, from a, a classic TV show, and then uh, the, the movie revivals, either live action or animated over the years. Um, so yeah, I, I think. It's a song that everybody knows, and, and with the show's subject matter, it's it's very related to Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one um, again. This was one that just missed the cut for me. Um, like you said, just so so iconic. Just you know the like you said, there's just the snap with the, just the snapping and the you know, the lyrics in it, and the you know the show was just so iconic, and then the films and. Um, yeah, you can't think of uh, Halloween without thinking about the Adams family because they are the creepiest family you've ever met. So, <laughs> um, all right. Well, I have uh, I have one honorable mention left as well, and uh, this is kind of an interesting one, but uh, I'm going to give a little nod to uh, our boys Scott and JT over at the Place to Be because um, every Halloween they do like to play the song, um, and that is the Werewolf Bar Mitzvah. Uh, by Tracy Morgan and uh, Donald Glover from uh, from the show Thirty Rock. Um, this was uh, they did this back in uh, 2010, and it's uh, it's kind of a I mean you, again you talk about um, kind of novelty type songs. This is one of those ones where it's like you have somebody who's getting ready for a bar mitzvah, and they uh, eventually and during the bar mitzvah they turn to a werewolf. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, it's like I, but like I said, you know, uh, every uh, for every Halloween episode for that uh, the Place to Be podcast does, they play the song at least once. So um, it kind of has a little bit of a, uh, you know, kind of close tie-in to this to the PTB. So I figured I'd give it a little bit of a pay homage to the boys. You got to pay homage to the boys. Oh, of course. Yep. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, that will. Uh, oh, 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 go ahead. No, I was just saying that's a good pick. Okay, Um, so that will go ahead and uh, wrap up the first half here. So we're going to go ahead and take a little breather, kind of refresh, um, refresh the candy bowls. um, And when we come back, we will uh, go from the uh, we'll turn off the radio and head over to the silver screen as we discuss some of our um, what we think are the best horror films. Uh, This is, of course, making Mount Rushmore here on the PTV Pop Experience. And we will see you on the other side of this break.
And we're back on Mickey Mount Rushmore here on the PTV Pop Experience. I am Steve Riddle alongside Ashley Cruz. We are talking all things Halloween this episode, for it is the month of October. Uh, of course, in the first half, we discussed some of our favorite Halloween songs that we believe belong on our Mount Rushmore. And now for the second half here, we're going to, as I said, turn off the radio and head to the silver screen as we talk about some of our um, horror films that we think would make the Mount Rushmore. Um, and I will go ahead and uh, kick things off here. And then I'm going to be completely honest i am not the biggest fan of horror um but i wanted to you know but i do have films i do think belong on the mount rushmore and what i kind of wanted to do was try to cover as you know as many eras as i could um i do have two films from the same year but i do have like a kind of a newer film some like you know mid films and then i have uh for my first pick that here kind of a really old school film and arguably you know one of the greatest horror films of all time and i went with 1931's frankenstein uh, of course uh, as i mentioned the aforementioned uh, boris karloff portrayed the uh the monster um this kind of helped kick off the uh the universal classic monsters franchise um, that would kind of dominate that early you know like 30s and 40s and of course uh point of reference um again Talking about our uh, good friend Scott Criscolo, um, if you go to the archives here on the Pop Feed, he of course did all the Universal Classic Monster films. Um, so be sure to, to uh, check that out. Check all those out. Um, of course, this um, this film, like I said, arguably considered one of the greatest horror films um, ever made, and also one of the greatest films ever made. Um, spawned arguably the greatest sequel ever made with The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, of course, it would go on to spawn its own franchise with uh, with Frankenstein heavily involved. Um, the last couple of years, we haven't seen too much of uh, of Frankenstein. Um, I know they, there was one in um, in the uh, later part of like the 2010s that came out with uh, Aaron Eckerd that um, didn't do too well. But um, but I think when you think of uh, horror films, especially when you're talking like classic horror films from the you know, early days of Hollywood. Um, this is definitely one I think would, uh, I think a lot of people would have on their list. So, um, Ashley, did you have anything else to say about Frankenstein? Oh, well, I, I think it's a great pick. And as far as the universal monsters, Frankenstein is definitely my favorite, uh, monster, uh, horror icon. Um, I have all the universal films on DVD. I'm a big fan of those. I, Every once in a while, I'll get a kick to go back and watch some of those old ones. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Boris Karloff in the role of Frankenstein is so iconic. And I, I think it anybody that tried to follow his footsteps is just paling in comparison. I think he only did a handful of appearances as the monster. Um like you say, Frankenstein, uh, along with Dracula, kind of kicked off the whole monster revolution. Uh, Bride of Frankenstein is great. I actually, I think that um, the third one they did, Son of Frankenstein, which was kind of the inspiration for young Frankenstein, is is criminally underrated as well. You've got uh, Basil Rathbone as the son of uh, the original Doctor who he played the famous version of Sherlock Holmes. And then you've got uh, Bela Lugosi plays um, Igor in that one. So it's it's a it's a good uh, representation of some classic actors just chewing scenery and, and doing some good acting. But you got to you can't get to the third one without the original. 
and I know it's like it's based on a book and it's kind of like a wild departure from the book I think I think they got into a stage play that they kind of drew inspiration from to do the original film it's a lot different from Mary Shelley's book but it's the version that everybody remembers mm-hmm. yeah definitely and um like I said, you know, like we said, you know, it kind of kicked off that whole franchise. Um, it was that and Dracula came out that same year, so they were the they were basically the the forefathers of it. So, and I know Universal has recently tried to redo it, um, with their Dark Universe. Um, unfortunately, that did not uh, pan out so well. So, um, yeah, because uh, the, the, the what's up? Back to the drawing board once again. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to see if they uh, what they go from where they go from there. Um, all right. Well, why don't you go ahead and give us uh, your first entry on your Mount Rushmore of horror films? Okay. Well, I appreciate the uh, approach you took, trying to spread out and and cover a wide variety. When I boiled it down to my final four, I think these films all came out within this a four-year period um so my first choice is the original halloween from i believe 1978 uh, john carpenter um which i think they were going to originally call it uh the babysitter murders or the babysitter killer and i don't i think it was i don't know if it was carpenter or possibly the producer uh, mustafa akkad that suggested tying it in with the holiday at Halloween time, you know, a, a, a crazed maniac running around killing teenagers and, you know, young children out trick-or-treating. There's this certain aura of danger about, I mean, it's just a classic film. You've got Jamie Lee Curtis in um, her film debut, I believe. Um, you've got the great Donald Pleasance playing Dr. Sam Loomis, a very iconic role. Um, it's, I appreciate the music sets a tone. Um, the character of Michael Myers, just that featureless mask, which was a... I believe a William Shatner Star Trek mask that they kind of cut the eye holes out of, painted it white, frizzed all the hair out, and it just it just worked so perfectly for this emotionless killer of he gets out and he's stalking these teenagers and picking them off one by one, and it's before they got into later movies that kind of strayed a little too far from the uh, the main goal I guess of the of the film but he's just an iconic character I, I appreciate the suspense you know the stalking you know there's not really there's not really a lot of gore even in this movie even though there's a several of them that get killed um I like that one, and I kind of a lot of times I watch that one in the sequel, Halloween Two, back to back. I kind of treat it as like one big movie, but the original I have to go with the original as my first choice. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, um, I agree. I actually had it on. Um, I did have it on my Mount Rushmore as well. Um, I mean, it is just such you know, such an iconic you know iconic film. Um, it kind of was one of the first you know big slasher films of that time frame. Um, you because know, I think that came before, because that was before Friday the Thirteenth and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. So this, this one definitely set the, you know, the template for everything. Um, it was, um, it was Jamie Lee Curtis's debut on the big screen. So, um, so this pretty much, you know, launched her to the to the stratosphere as uh, as Laurie. Um, it introduced, you know, the what would become the common trope in horror films of the final girl. Um, <laughs> Like I said, Michael Myers is just such an iconic villain with the, uh, you know, like you said, with the uh, the Shatner mask, which is it's so weird, but it just works so perfectly. Um, you know, you got other great characters in there. We talked about the soundtrack earlier, the uh, the theme, um, and obviously it would go on to spawn numerous uh, sequels slash remakes slash prequels slash whatever else. It's you know, the, you know, it's so hard to keep track of everything of how everything goes, and of course, you know. I know that um, uh, Rob Zombie. I remember Rob Zombie doing the two and in, um, in the late 2000s, um, and then of course these last couple of years we have the more recent films, um, uh, the 2018 Halloween, Halloween Kills, and then more recently Halloween Ends. Um, I mean, yeah. So just even though the even though the timeline does get pretty complicated when you're trying to follow through everything, um, there is no question that um, that when you're talking horror films, this is one of those. You know, you could almost argue. I mean, I know obviously there have been horror films before it, um, but this is going. You can almost argue this one kind of revitalized that fran- that uh, that genre. And as we kind of get get into the '80s, we would see a lot more classic horror films um, kind of following its footsteps. So, um, and they will keep making Halloween movies until the end of time because, as they say in the movie, you can't kill the boogeyman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no matter what, yeah, no matter what they do, he always he always finds a way to come back. So, but yeah, I think um, you're. I think this definitely belongs on a Mount Rushmore for uh, for horror, horror films. So, um, okay, well uh, we'll stick with you, Ashley. Why don't you give us the next entry on your Mount Rushmore of horror films? Okay, um, I'll just go down the list here. With I believe it came out the following year, 1979. It would be Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, I think it's the the ultimate intruder in a house movie, but it's an alien on a spaceship where you you can't get away. This this thing is stalking you. Um, it's almost impossible to kill. Um, you've got Sigourney Weaver and her breakout role as Ripley, um, which she's went on to be, you know, another, like the final final girl, um, like you mentioned before. Um, And I think originally that character wasn't even written as a female. I don't think they had any genders in mind when they wrote the script. but they went with her, and it worked perfectly. And it's another franchise that has spawned numerous sequels. Um, one great sequel in Aliens, 
which I consider more of an action movie than a horror movie. But the original Alien is the better horror movie, in my opinion. There's a lot of uh, sneaking around and lots of sci-fi goodness to behold uh, within it. Uh, a great cast of characters. And it's just... We actually went out a couple of years ago, I think it was 2019, when they did the 40th anniversary re-release and watched it on the big screen. That's how much a fan I am of this film. So that's my second choice, Alien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely um, agree. Like you said, uh, you have all those great elements of horror and addition to sci-fi. Um, just the idea of like being out in space on the ship with this, you know, this monster kind of stalking you. Um, they do a really good job in, you know, keeping the tension ramped up, ramped up through everything. Um, you know, obviously one of the most iconic, you know, deaths in, in a horror film when the, uh, what was it? The chest burster burst through the one guy's, um, through the one guy. Um, yeah. I think, uh, John Hurt, the actor, I think he's holds the record for being killed on screen the most times <laughs> as an actor. <laughs> Although Sean Bean is closing in on him, I think. <laughs> yeah um yeah like you but like you said this was obviously you know sigourney Re- sigourney weaver's breakout um some other good casting in there um and like you said it's again spawned you know numerous film uh, sequels um it also of course did the um the little crossover with predator um in the mid-2000s and then in 20 in the 2010s you had the uh again kind of like the uh you know prequels i guess um prometheus and um and covenant um mm-hmm. So again, just kind of when you think, and I mean, it did win the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. So um, it just goes to show you how how amazing of a job they did with everything, especially when it came to uh, making the alien look just as absolutely scary as possible. So, um, yes. so I definitely give them a lot of uh, give them a lot of credit for that, and I can definitely see it just um, just missed the cut for me, um, but I definitely. Um, can see why you would have it on your Mount Rushmore. So uh, good pick there. Um, H.R. Geiger was like a famed sci-fi illustrator. He he designed the concepts for the creature that they constructed. So yeah, it's so cutting edge and, and memorable. It's just crazy good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'll go ahead and give my next entry here on my Mount Rushmore and. Uh, uh, this film actually it did come out the same year as Halloween, um, but a completely different horror film because unlike that uh, Halloween, which was all about you know serial killer, uh, this film kind of almost revitalized um, another kind of uh, monster for horror. Of course, I'm talking about zombies. Uh, that is 1978's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, of course, uh, done by the great uh, George A. Romero. Um, kind of you know playing kind of a uh, Played homage to the uh, to Night of the Living Dead from ten years prior, um, and like I said, it definitely um, kind of brought the zombie fr- the zombie um, um, back to the uh, back to the big screen in a big way. Um, again, just you know, the, just the idea of all these uh, these undead um, beep things coming after you. Um, of course, it would go on to um, spawn a uh, a remake in two thousand four um, that was done by uh, by Zack Snyder. Um, 
And um, I mean, what you think of, I mean, obviously there've been a lot of really solid horror um, zombie films over the years. Um, I mentioned, uh, like I mentioned the, uh, the 2004 remake, of course you have um, zombie land from 09, um, um, Shaun of the dead, which was a great kind of, uh, you know, comedy horror, horror film that a lot of people like to talk about. Um, but I think when you talk about, um, terms of the great zombie films um and also i did i also want to mention uh from 2013 of course world war z um but i think when you um when you think about um zombie films i think besides night of the living dead um one of the first ones that I'll always get talked about is um is dawn of the dead from 78 and um you actually had it as one of your honorable mentions i did um and it was just missed the cut of being in my top four uh, i love the movie um I think he all uh, Romero always tried to include some kind of social commentary with his zombie films. So you know, with this one being set in a mall, it talks. It's, it's supposed to speak on commercialism and how we we as people must consume. So that ties in with the zombies that they must consume brains and flesh and all of that. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, this this movie is a classic. I think yeah, without George M- Romero with Night of the Living Dead and this one, and uh, Day of the Dead from '85, which a lot of people like, it's it's not one of my favorites. But uh, I don't think uh, we have like The Walking Dead or any of that stuff today without what George Romero did with these two films especially uh dawn of the dead which is mm-hmm. i think is his best one mm-hmm. yeah definitely you like i say you don't all the uh the films i had mentioned earlier you don't see any of those without um without dawn of the dead so um all right well uh why don't you go ahead and give us the next century on your mount rushmore of horror films okay i'm just going right down the list here and i believe this one came out in 1980 I'm talking about an adaptation of a classic horror novel by Stephen King by a very acclaimed director in Stanley Kubrick talking about The Shining. Um, I think this is a long movie, but I think it's probably one of the best depictions of a man just spiraling into madness in over the course of two two and a half hours or however long this film is um which i think comes across better in the book maybe because uh, jack nicholson kind of comes across as crazy right from the get-go he's like frazzled at his wit's end it seems like but he does devolve as the film goes along um and there's so much commentary and symbolism in this film um, that's been debated for 40 plus years. And they even did a documentary I watched earlier today, again, uh, Room 237, which is the the room where all the bad stuff happens in the film, where it's talking about different kinds of symbolism and what, what this means and what that means within the film. Um, 
it's an interesting watch as well. But I mean, this, this movie, it's there's so many iconic scenes and lines of dialogue from this. I mean, you've got Red Rum, um, Here's Johnny, um, you've got the strange 70s styled carpet, you've got the twins in the hallway, you've got the blood coming out of the elevator, um, you've got the maze, running through the maze at the end, um, and just Shelley Duvall getting absolutely terrorized on screen and from everything I've read is she was basically terrorized during the filming of this by Kubrick. I think he wanted some authenticity. Unfortunately, this poor woman was, was put through the ringer. And, um, of course, you've got uh, Danny Lloyd playing the son, uh, Danny Torrance, which, a um, little Easter egg, um, Danny Lloyd actually is a professor of biology in the town where I live now. Hmm. Um, yeah. And he he has a small cameo in Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining. Um, during the baseball game scene, he's one of the guys in the stands. Um, but he pretty much only acted in a few films in the early 80s and just kind of left it all behind. And it was just several years ago I found out. It's like, sure enough. And I think he's kind of embraced the horror. I think he's actually gone to some conventions and stuff after uh, the Dr. Sleep thing. But uh, back to the movie The Shining. I mean, it's, it's iconic. Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance is just a crazed maniac trying to kill his family and just devolving into madness and locked away in a snowbound hotel in Colorado in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I had this, um, this actually was one of my honorable mentions. I uh, just missed the t- top four for me. It's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's just such an iconic film. Um, I mean, Jack Nicholson just kills it as Jack Torrance. I mean, he was only, what five years removed for that point from uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, so he was, you know, he, he was, you know, good at playing these kind of crazy character, you know, ca- crazy type <laughs> characters. Um, Typecast like much? Oh. <laughs> yeah, um, like you said, um, Maybe he wasn't acting. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, you mentioned um, Shelly Duvall. I mean, she definitely, um, it, it looked at times like you, like it was, was legitimate and uh, not just acting. Um yeah. Just again, like so many iconic scenes, great lines. Um, um, I think you mentioned Red Drum. Um, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, and then of course, obviously the most iconic one from the film, you know, here's Johnny, which apparently uh, Kubrick almost didn't add in because since he w- apparently was from since he's from England, he didn't get the reference. Oh. So yeah, so he didn't. So he almost, I guess they um just kind of let it in, left it in. So, but that would have been interesting if that had, that had been cut, which. Um, I don't know how that would have, uh, you know, how that would have, how that would have looked, but, um, and apparently I was kind of reading up on it because you mentioned the kind of behind the scenes uh, turmoil that uh, Kubrick was putting Duvall through. Um, the film actually was nominated for two um, Razzie awards. That was the first year of the Razzies, and they got two um, two 
nominations for worst director and worst actress uh, actress for Duvall. Um, but apparently last year they rescinded um, Duvall's nomination because of Kubrick's treatment of her. So um, I did read that. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's so, yeah. Kind of a interesting little, uh, interesting little tidbit there. Um, and then like you, you mentioned, um, Dr. Sleep, um, you know, coming out in, uh, you know, 2019, which I, I did not see that film. Um, but I, and my, it's like my interest, my kind of a connection, mostly to The Shine, is the fact that it's um, it's the inspiration for arguably one of the greatest um, Treehouse of Horror segments of all time with The Shinning. Um, right. <laughs> just seeing, uh, you know, just movie. seeing Homer go crazy and that that uh, that short um, was is obviously great. Um but yeah, I think um, yeah, I, and it's funny because um, I guess Stephen King was not too happy with how the film turned out because of how much it deviated from the novel. Um, yes. So that is again kind of another interest, interesting type of interesting note there. But I mean, like you said, it's one of the most iconic horror films of all time. It's probably you know one of Jack Nicholson's you know top five performances, um, one of Duvall's best performances of all time. It's just it's you know it's one of the standard bearers of, um, of horror. So I definitely, uh, think it's, um, like I said, it didn't quite make my top four, but I, but it, um, but it definitely, um, belongs on there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Stephen King did not like the film. He didn't like the treatment of it. Uh, Kubrick changed a lot and there's actually a scene. So in the, in the, in the book, they're driving to the hotel in a red Volkswagen. Well, in the movie, they're they're driving a yellow Volkswagen. When the Scatman Carruthers character is driving back to the hotel in the snowstorm, there is a red Volkswagen that's been hit by a semi on the side of the road. And apparently that was Kubrick's way to say, this is not your story. This is my story. I killed your story. We're going with mine. So that was his big <laughs> send off to King and that pretty much incensed him i think <laughs> uh well if, if you i've you know heard the stories that uh stanley kubrick is kind of one of those you know really off the wall type of directors so right. it wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me couple that wouldn't totally surprise uh, surprise me that that happened <laughs> all right well i will go ahead and give uh, my last entry on my mount rushmore of horror films and um, this is one that um, this is my um, most recent one, even though it actually came out in '99, and it is um, is one that kind of brought forth the um, what's known as the found footage type of film um, that you see in a lot of uh, horror films today. And I, of course, am going with the Blair Witch Project. Um, this was I remember this was such a um, you know big film when it first came out. There was a lot of hype behind it. Um, as I mentioned, you know, the way it was shot, you know, like a found footage type of, you know, type filming, um, you know, it was done on such a low budget, but it was definitely, um, again, just a lot of uh, buzz around it. Um, and it's something you did, um, did very, very well. Um, I know some people think it doesn't, you know, hold up to this day. Um, and we did end up, um, and of course, we've had, I think, um, like one or two, um, we did get like one or two sequels after it. Um that didn't do um, maybe as well as um, as it, as this one, um, but I mean, there's no question about the impact that it did la- that it did have um, when it first came out, and then eventually when you got more found footage type films, 
um, particularly more towards like the end of the 2000s, um, you know, you're like your paranormal activities and your Cloverfield and um, Last Exorcism um, and so and so and uh, so a couple of other ones. So um, again, kind of uh, the mileage may vary for a lot of people on this type of on this film, but I think um, when you go when it comes down to brass tacks. Um, you can't deny the impact that it had, um, particularly when it did come out when it did. So, um, Ashley, do you have anything else to say about the Blair Witch Project? I I saw that in theaters in college. That was '99, so yeah, I was still in college, and it was it was pretty wild. I mean, I think I've watched it again since then. And there's a lot of I don't know if they had a major script going on. Seems like there's a lot of ad libbing and, and just a lot of nothing happening for parts of the movie, and then somebody would do something off to the side to draw their attention, and then they'd have to react to it. Um, but the ending, when she goes into the the house or wherever it is, and sees the guy just standing in the corner, is one of the most effective endings I think in a horror movie. It's it's. I remember it, it really weirded me out when I saw that. Um, they tried, like you said, they tried to do some sequels, weren't as good. I think, I think maybe the Paranormal Activity films might have done found footage better because it was in a house. I don't. Majority of the Blair Witch is out in the woods. So there's only so much you can do. I think the night scenes are just them in the dark, you know, holding a flashlight under their face and <laughs> crying or whatever. So I don't know that that resonated me, with me on a rewatch, but for the first viewing, I mean, it was effective. So yeah, it's it's a memorable film, and it was one of the tentpole films in horror when it came out. It's still remember to this day so can't fault that pick at all mm -hmm. yeah and this it actually um I, and the kind of a tie-in i have to it is uh one of the best um kind of cut, uh, kind of jokes in um in a family guy episode when brian's uh working as a cni dog and he brings his um owner to watch the watch the river witch project and he's uh kind of describing it to him at one point he's just like nothing's happening nothing's happening <laughs> nothing's happening it's over a lot of people in the eyes <laughs> look pissed. <laughs> wow. I just I just remember that. So, um, so. <laughs> all right. Well, you have one entry left on your Mount Rushmore, so why don't you let us know what it is? I do. It's from 1982, and we're going back to where we started with John Carpenter. John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, Another sci-fi, I guess I like my sci-fi movies, when they're done well in the, in the genre of horror. I think this one probably takes the cake for me. Some of the greatest practical effects ever in a movie with the way the the alien creature that, that can imitate or assimilate to whatever it touches. Uh, you got classic scenes of the thing, the tentacles coming out of the dog, and then you have like the crab or spider creature walking around. It's just like the guy's head, um, and you've got uh, what I would consider 
one of the epitomes of cool is just Kurt Russell in the eighties, uh, as in the lead role there. Um, it's, it's definitely a guy's movie. There are no females to be found in this entire movie. <laughs> uh, uh, you, and you've got Wilford Brimley in a, in a horror movie. Um, and you got the great uh, Keith David is in it as well. Um, just, I just love, you know, it's set in that uh, Antarctic uh, research station. It's just Kurt Russell with the blowtorch burning things is just, I just love it. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's necessarily scary, but as a creature feature and uh, a marvel in practical effects, it's 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 one of the best that I've ever seen, and I can watch it anytime. Um, they did end up doing a, a serviceable prequel that kind of filled in the gaps. I know there's one scene where they go to the Norwegian research station that's all like burned out and um, axes and doors and stuff. So that's the prequel that came out 20 years later or so kind of fills in that gap. And then the ending of that movie uh, ties into the beginning of the thing, which is the dog running across the snow being chased by a helicopter and shot at, which I thought was a nice touch to tie those together. But I mean, I just, I can watch this anytime. Uh, it just gives me great joy in watching this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is um, kind of an interesting one. I, I definitely um, don't recall having seen this film. Um, I mean, one thing you say about John Carpenter, he definitely does um, does horror well. So, yeah. um, I mean, you can't can't deny that. Um, but I mean, like you said, you know, you have Kurt Russell um, when he was really at you know in his groove. A um, couple of other big names in there. Um, I, I think the idea of this, you know this creature kind of being able to just, you know, mimic anything that it, that it wants to, I think would be, would be kind of scary. Um, and for me, at least, um, I do remember when, um, I do remember the prequel coming out in, um, in 2011. Um, I don't remember doing like that well, like I did, it did okay, but it didn't do like, you know, gangbusters. Um, and I know even the, um, the, the original thing, um, you know, it did okay as well, but unfortunately that had the, um, this the um unfortunate um you know task of coming out get coming out at uh at the same time as et so um i think i think when it comes to an alien film more people are going to want to venture over to the uh to the nicer et than to the thing so right yeah um, that's a that's a rough week opening weekend there um, yes um but yeah definitely um yeah, I can see why um, why you would have it on yours. Um, again, it was one of those ones that kind of is was on the outside looking ends for me at least. So yeah, so I, it's basically it's from a short story from 1938 um, called "Who Goes There" was the original uh, genesis of the movie, and then they had a film from 1951 called "The Thing from Another World," which is so I guess technically the thing is re- a remake or homage to a previous film, but I think it's the superior uh, adaptation 
of, of that story by far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, that will go ahead and uh, wrap up both our uh, main Mount Rushmore's. Um, so now let's go ahead and talk um, honorable mentions. I will go ahead with my uh, my first one here. And uh, I did go with another um, slasher film, obviously following in the uh, steps of Halloween. I did go with uh, the first Friday the 13th from 1980. Um, kind of introducing uh, the world to uh, to another guy that just can't die no matter how many times you try, uh, Jason oh. Voorhees. Um, although it is interesting that in the film, in this I thought, film, I thought you were going to say Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't really, uh, you know, he's he's, you know, it takes a lot to kill him too. But um, um, but the interesting thing, of course, about this film is that um. Technically, Jason really isn't even the villain. It's his mom, um, right. uh, Pamela. So uh, Jason really re- wouldn't become the uh, the main villain of the franchise until um, until later. Um, but again, just kind of the whole uh, just you know you got this you know you know everyone at camp and uh, it made people not want to go to camp because of uh, of this <laughs> um, of this film. Um, and again, just so many you know you know memorable deaths in it. Um, obviously, another iconic look for this you know. For Jason with the hockey mask and the machete, um, again it would spawn numerous films. Um, of course, the legendary crossover that he did with Freddy and Freddy versus Jason, um, and then of course you have the 2009 uh, Friday the 13th um, that was basically a kind of a reboot of it. Um, it's one that I'm surprised we haven't seen again in recent, in like more more recent years that we haven't seen another Friday the 13th film. Um, Maybe they just don't, you know, they're just not sure kind of where to go go with it from here. Um, but I think when you do, um, when you think about, you know, obviously the slasher films from that, you know, late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, this these were basically the big three, Jason, Michael, and then obviously a few years later, of course, was when Freddy came along. So, um, and by the way, point of note, Nightmare on Elm Street did not make my honorable mentions. It again, just missed the cut for me. Um, just because I think he's kind of, you know, it's just I think I kind of think more Jason and Michael are the more you know bigger names than uh, than Freddie is, so that's why uh, yeah. that's why it just missed it. Um, but did you, um, think, did you? Oh, go ahead. Uh, in terms of Freddie, I think a lot of the later sequels were so bad that they kind of muddies the waters of uh, Freddie and the horror genre for me anyway. There's some really bad movies out there, <laughs> sequels. <laughs> um, as far as Friday the 13th, I think there's been a lot of like uh, studio contractual people getting sued over the years for the rights. And I think not too long ago, the actual original writer to the original Friday the 13th, Victor Miller, got the rights to that story back. And I believe that there is a prequel tv series in development that's going to focus on a younger pamela Voorhees and jason uh, kind of in the style of what they did with uh bates motel i think so jason in some form is going to be back not too <laughs> not in the, in the in the near future hmm. that would um That'd be kind of interesting to see. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, why don't you go ahead and give us one of your honorable mentions. Okay. Um, this one, I guess, 
would be considered the first modern blockbuster. It put Steven Spielberg on the map. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Jaws, which I think is 1975. Um, it's just the classic music, um, great characters. Uh, one of the worst mayors of a town in cinematic history <laughs> is in this film. Uh, just the terror of a great white shark terrorizing this this beach or almost I think it's an island community. Yeah, it's Amity Island um, with this out of town sheriff that's trying to save everybody. And there's there's some there's some decent effects. Um, it didn't make my list for the Mount Rushmore, but I do watch it every 4th of July. It's my 4th of July tradition because that's when the film is set. So I always know I'm going to watch Jaws at least once every year. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, um, this is yeah, this was a good pick. Like you said, it was it was in essence the first big summer blockbuster um, and kind of kudos to Steven Spielberg for kind of recognizing that. Um, that you know the summer is probably the, is obviously the time when most people will be out to see films so he he definitely mm -hmm. set the model for that um it you know kind of like you know we talk about how some of these other films you know keep people away from certain things obviously everyone wanted to stay away from the beach um after they see uh after they see <laughs> this film and of course nobody will ever want to go skinny dipping at night again um because, because of the opening scene of this film <laughs> <Right>. um <laughs> but yeah just again just the you know the the tension that you feel trying to, you know, with them trying to find this shark. Um, some good quotes in here as well. Obviously, you know, you're going to need a, you're going to need a bigger boat. Um, I think um, what kind of hurts this film a little bit is that if they just left it with this one, it would have been fine. But then they had to do those sequels, which, um, which completely yeah. kind of muddy the waters for this uh, yeah. for the for Jaws. Um, yes. Of course, it would go on to be a, um, of course, an attraction at Universal. Um, one of the more, you know, definitely one of the more popular ones. Um, and it, again, kind of like you said, put Steven Spielberg on the map. Um, and uh, it's definitely like you, and like we, like we said, kind of, you know, set the template for what we know as the summer blockbuster. So definitely a, um, definitely a good pick there. Yeah, I'm surprised that they haven't tried to reboot this one yet. I mean, they've they've done a lot of shark in the water type things with like deep blue sea, and then you even have like that whole terrible franchise of Sharknado. <laughs> oh, God. I don't think you would have any of that without Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and um, well, you also have um, the Meg as well. Oh, so. good point. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Those are actually... Maybe, they're, maybe that's... Yeah. Maybe that's the, probably they're trying to make their, like, almost like a kind of like a revision, reimagining of Jaws. Yeah. It's even bigger than Jaws. It's a prehistoric shark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, oh gosh, Sharknado, that was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen any of those films, but um, I hear they, they don't hold up well, so. I think I may, might have made it through the first one, and then I had enough. <laughs> <laughs> I had an idea of what was coming beyond that, and it was not for me. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was just like, how, how much more camp can they get, just for right. the sake of it? <laughs> How many more D-list celebrities can we cram into this thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
right. Well, I'll go ahead and give another one of my honorable mentions. Um, I do have another um, adaptation of a Stephen King novel. Um, We're going to go ahead a year um, to 1976 uh, with Carrie. Um, you have, of course, this story about this girl who um, who is, you know, tormented by her you know, by her schoolmates as well as her religious mother. She learns that she has telekinetic abilities, um, and then, of course, it all culminates in one of the most uh, memorable um, killing sequences of all time. Of course, at the prom, where she gets the uh, the pig blood dumped all over her by the by the by the bully by Chris, and then she just goes completely, um, you know, <laughs> super cyan, basically, just you know, <laughs> wiping everybody out with her powers. Um, just completely complete chaos, and of course, at the end, she gets um, she eventually kills her mom before killing herself. Um, and then you have that iconic scene at the very end where um, where Snoo, or I mean uh, Sue shows up at the uh, the side of the former house. She puts the flowers down, and then Carrie's hand just kind of just pops up out of the ground and grabs her. Just such a, you know iconic you know iconic scene. Um, obviously, this is you know Sissy Spacek, um, you know most iconic role. Um, kind of interesting. Um, we've actually um, kind of funny we're talking about this film because we actually just lost. Um, we're, we're actually recording the day the day before we, rec- we recorded this. Um, we did lose, um, sadly, uh, Piper Laurie, um, who of course played um, who played Margaret. Um, so kind of a sad, yes. you know, kind of little sad little tie in there. Father um, Hill, who was ironically hyper religious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, of course this this. Um, this did spawn a. Uh, we did get a a, a a remake in uh, 2002 of the film. Um, we also had that. Um, what was that? I think it was like the Rage Carry 2 in '99. Before that, and then of course in 2013, we had another re, uh, reboot of it. This time with uh, Chloe Chloe Grace Moretz as Carrie and uh, Julianne Moore as Margaret. Um, that one didn't do. Um, obviously, didn't do as well, unfortunately. Um, but I think when you um, go back to that time frame and. Um, you know, think about some of the great horror films from that late seventies period. You can, I think you can can't argue that um, that Carrie is definitely up there. And kind of interesting. Um, if I, I, I'm trying to remember where I saw this, but apparently, um, if I remember correctly, uh, Brian De Palma was actually working with George Lucas, who at the time was, of course, casting for Star Wars. And um, apparently, the big rumor that I that they talk about was that um, they initially had um, Carrie Fisher in mind to play Carrie for this film and they wanted Sissy Spacek and Lucas had, was thinking of Sissy Spacek as Princess Leia, which would have made things so much different between those two films. I think they did um, ultimately get the casting right for both of them. Um, but sharing some casting space and I think a lot of those actors read for both movies. And I think uh, William Catt, who's in Carrie actually read for Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Hmm, that would have been there was a lot of crossover of, of struggling actors trying to get cast in a movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and let's also not forget in Carrie we have the uh, the debut of a uh, very young John Travolta. Yes, as uh, as Chris's boyfriend. So um, he still so. has that sweat hog smell on him. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, that's good. Um, but um, did you have anything else you wanted to say about Carrie? Uh, it's a it's a great uh, pick to mention. I think anything Stephen King horror related is going to be great for Halloween time. 
Uh, it's kind of hit or miss on the movie adaptations of his books, but Carrie was the first one, and it it might be the the best uh, in relation to the book, tying it into the movie. But uh, it's it's a it's a really good it's a good movie, absolutely. Um, they're all gonna laugh at you. <laughs> yeah. <Don't remember. laughs> all right. Well, why don't you go ahead and give us another uh, entry in your honorable mentions? Okay. Um, I think I have a couple left. Um, I'm gonna go back to I think 1960. Um, I think with a horror suspense Halloween theme, we'd be remiss not to mention Alfred Hitchcock in some capacity. And with his film Psycho, um, it's a very iconic film that's stood the, the test of time, in, in my opinion. It's got uh, Vivian Lee, uh, who's Jamie Curtis's mother, is in it. She's the big uh, shock kill, like halfway through the film, that you think she's the main character of this movie and she dies um you've got uh, anthony perkins playing um just this generally creepy young man that seems good-natured um but uh, don't upset mother <laughs> uh, or or things change um the uh of course the shower scene famous um on-screen death of mother killing uh, her, and of course at the end the shock of mother's actually dead, and it's and it's been him the whole time dressed up, dressing up, doing these things. Is it was a, it was a had to be a shock factor for 1960. I think it was it was we were moving forward in time with. The modernization of horror we were getting away from uh universal and hammer films of 30s 40s and 50s i think this was really ushering in a modern type of a thing um so yeah i, I you, you gotta mention this film around halloween time Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I mean, really, when you think about it, before John Carpenter, there was Alfred Hitchcock when it came to horror. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so many great films of his that you can include on here. I mean, you think, you know, The Birds or um, Vertigo, um, Dial In for Murder, um, so many good ones. But um, I think when it comes to horror, Psycho is definitely at the very top. Um, like you said, just one of the most iconic scenes in history with uh with uh, uh, Marion getting killed in the shower, like you said, just the this you know the the scenery of everything is coupled with like the strings in the background. It's just you know such an iconic scene. Um, like you said, you know you think Norman Bates is this normal guy, but he's really completely screwed up in the head. Um, <laughs> and then that you know the scene at the end there where he's just standing there with the blanket around him, and you know he says you know he's not going to kill the fly on his hand. Um, Obviously, I like to think when people think of Psycho, you think this one and not the uh, 98 remake with Vince Vaughn. Because um, Vince Vaughn's, you know, horror right. is something he, sh- he shouldn't be doing. Um, 
Um, you also mentioned, um, you did mention uh, Bates Motel, which I know that um, got a lot of play uh, in the late 2010s. Um, and it's, it's actually supposed to be, you know, pretty good. I haven't um, had a chance to see it myself. It's um, kind of, it's, you know, one I've kind of thought about seeing. Um, you also had, um, I believe there was like, even before that, uh, that 98 remake, there was like, I think like three other sequels um, for the film, which... <laughs> I don't remember much, much, much about them, so that probably just tells you what, to, how those did. Um, but yeah, yeah I think- they they diminish in quality as they go along. The second one, which was like 1982, so like 22 years later, is actually pretty good because it's they're trying. Somebody finds out that he's the one that did the original murders, and they're trying to frame him for a new set of murders. So he's faultless through the entire film until the end when he figures everything out then he kills people <laughs> so it's it's an interesting take but it's not the original uh and then after that it just kind of devolves into typical um slasher fair i don't so but yeah you can't, you can't beat the first one. Oh yeah definitely i no doubt about it so um all right, well, I'll go ahead and uh, give another one of my honorable mentions. I mentioned it um, earlier when talking about um, the Blair Witch Project, um, but I did also pick Paranormal Activity, the first one from uh, 20, 2007. Um, again, just, you know, the idea of just, you know, everything from this, you know, this video camera, you know, you got this, you know, this young couple who's dealing with all this, uh, these, you know, the spirit coming after them. Um, you kind of, again, see the slow kind of descent into madness for both of them, particularly for... Um, for the main girl, uh, Katie, and eventually it all comes to a head when she gets possessed um, and then ends up killing her boyfriend. Um, and then that kind of like final bit there where she kind of crawls to the camera and her face basically distorts as she jumps, as she uh, uh, rushes to it. Um, again, just kind of sent chills down your spine. Um, apparently there were some, uh, they actually did some alternate endings um, for the film. Um, there was, there's apparently one where, um, where it continues on to the next day where they get, um, where they've, the police like find them. Um, and at one point, um, like something happens where, and, uh, one of the officers like panics and like shoots her dead. Um, wow. apparently there's another ending where like, um, it follows the same, pro- you know, kind of plot as the, as the, as the main ending we got, but instead of, uh, her kind of charging the camera, she, um, she looks at the camera and then slits her throat to kill herself. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, I remember this film did like extremely well. It did, you know, it did really good on the, when it was out limited and then when it went wide, um, again, kind of one of those things where the, um, diminishing returns for every sequel. Um, Mm -hmm. I think they kind of went way overboard with, with it. Um, I mean, we've had now, um, the most recent one, uh, came out in 2021, um, which was the seventh film in this franchise, which again, kind of, uh, you know, maybe I think um, after a while, it's you know maybe it should have stopped at one at some point. But um, <laughs> but I do. But again, you know, when it first came out in 20, 2007, um, it came out like right at the right time because at this because it really kind of brought the found footage genre back in between because you then you had that and then in two thousand eight you had uh, Cloverfield, um, as well as Quarantine, and um, and it definitely I think still goes down in terms of like modern day. Um, one of the best horror films um, in recent times. So um, I don't know if you had anything else to say about the original Paranormal Activity. Uh, it's a good pick. Um, they did a lot with some some really neat 
practical trickery, I think. I don't know if it's I don't think that there's any much CGI effects in these movies, but they I'm sure they had like strings to pull stuff and there's some good jump scares in that movie, absolutely. Um and I guess for doing so many sequels, it can't cost much at all to make one of these. <laughs> I think you're pretty much dealing with no name actors and it's probably profitable. That's probably why they keep making them. <laughs> uh, quality be damned. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, like that for the first film, I think I agree with you. I think as they went on, I think as, and they did get slightly bigger budgets, you can definitely see some of the uh, the CGI effects. But um, for the most part, I think they definitely, they have done a good job making it feel, making it feel all, making it feel realistic. So. Um, all right. Well, I believe you have uh, one honorable mention left, so why don't you let us know what it is? I do. Um, it's The Exorcist. I think we're going back to early 70s, like 1973. Just, I'm not typically big on the demonic subgenre of, of horror, of like possessions and stuff like that, but I mean, this was the first really big one, and and they just knocked it out of the park. I mean, uh, Linda Blair as as Reagan, the, the the girl that gets possessed, and all of the <laughs> the demonic stuff she gets up to as the film moves along. It's just so many weird things happening to this movie. It's it's very unsettling. <laughs> um, You've got the the young priest that, that goes out and gets you know the old priest um, who um, has to help with the exorcism. It's very iconic, um, and I am curious to see the new film that just came out. Um, I think I've seen all of the Exorcist movies again, sequels slash prequels. Are not very good in comparison. Um, the third one is is decent. The second one is not good at all. But the original, um, very iconic, and I think it got a lot of press at the time. The marketing of the film, um, it, it did big numbers, uh, and it just had a certain vibe about it. Uh, the music, everything. Um, so yeah, I had I'd be remiss to not mention The Exorcist at Halloween Time as an honorable mention film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, again, this just just missed the cut for me, but um, I mean it's definitely one of the most iconic. It was so, you know, just so insane when it first came out. Um, some of the stuff that they showed. Um, I mean, like you said, Linda Blair as Reagan is just such an iconic character. Um, so many, uh, you know intense scenes in it um i mean i can imagine i mean it had to have been you know just insane to watch you know like you said because you know demonic possession wasn't something you saw a lot of in the film so it kind of you know broke some new ground there um again like you said it did spawn a couple sequels of course and we know we have the, the new one here um believer that just came out earlier this month um i know it's kind of kind of 
flailing a little bit and it hasn't gotten a lot of good reviews. Um, I think it was definitely kind of uh, interesting that they were able to bring uh, uh, Linda Blair and uh, Ellen uh, Burstyn back to reprise their characters. So I think that was kind of a nice little um, homage to the original uh, Exorcist. Um, but yeah, I think when you definitely um, when it comes down to it in terms of horror, um, you have to you have to put the Exorcist on, even if it's not um, either as on Mount Rushmore or as a um, or as an honorable mention. So um, definitely yeah. a good pick. Yeah, as soon as October first hit, that was the first movie we watched. We've been watching basically at least one horror movie a night the month of October, and The Exorcist was the one we went with first. So it, it just set the tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, um, I have two more on my uh, honorable mentions, so I'll just kind of kind of talk about both of them here at the same time. Um, I did go with um, from 2004. I did go with Saw. Um, kind of you know interesting little uh, franchise that that has gone on to um, produce. Obviously, um, just I, I always kind of it's funny. I always kind of link in kind of make the notion that the the first saw um felt more like a um like a psychological type of a horror film where you got these you know two guys in the bathroom um with the with the you know the hacksaws and, and uh you know you get introduced to uh to jigsaw for the first time um and he's kind of playing you know playing tormenting these two guys and then as we went on throughout the you know the franchise it just became more and more about you know how many more gruesome ways can we figure out to kill people so um yes. I, they've tried to keep them like a good narrative kind of flowing through the entire franchise, but really it just became all about the blood and gore. Um, you know, I know we have the uh, most recent film that came out uh, last month, Saw 10, which um, apparently has actually done fairly, has done pretty well. Um, I don't know if that's going to kind of lead to any more to any more. Again, this is one of those ones where it's like, you know, it's been diminishing returns with each new one. Um but I think it's definitely one, you know, and again, when you come to the to the modern films, um, you know, it is definitely it was memorable for when it first came out in 04 and it definitely deserves a um, deserves a mention. And I will just um, kind of quickly go to my last one here um, and I go to the um, to this day, the only horror film to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Uh, and that is, of course, 1991's Silence of the Lambs. Um, Again, just another you know iconic film. You got you know um, uh, Anthony Hopkins in one of his you know trademark roles as uh, Hannibal Lecter. Um, of course, Jodie Foster as Clarice. Um, just such again a great you know really great film. Um, really well acted. Really well done. Um, again, great lines in there. You know Anthony Hopkins with a great uh, I ate his liver with fava beans and a nice Chianti. Um, <laughs> Just such such a you know again amazing film and again like I mentioned the only the fact that this is still the only horror film to ever win Best Picture at the Academy Awards and it wasn't you know and that was a strong and that was a very strong year for um for film I mean you know the five the films that went up against you know Beauty and the Beast Bugsy JFK and the Prince of Tides so that's you know wow. that's some strong competition so for for the you know I think you know they could have easily you know Gone, gave it to Beauty and the Beast just to kind of make history with that as well, but they end up going, they end up do going with Silence of the Lambs, and it did, and it, it pretty much you know did a good sweep, and not just one Best Picture, one Best Director, one Best Actor, Best Actress, and um, and there was one other one, uh, Best Screenplay. So, you know, it's definitely I think in terms of um, of um, critically 
easily one of the best, one of the greatest horror films of all time. So I definitely wanted to uh, give that a mention. Um, did you want to just mention anything else about either Saw or Silence of the Lambs? Um, yeah, Saw is um, good. It's um, I, I, you were very accurate with the progression of the sequels. Um, yeah, it's funny. You could almost do the first movie is like a two-person play on the stage almost with with of course the shock ending at the end of uh, the guy that they think is dead <laughs> has been just laying there the whole time and is really the one behind everything um and the new sequel the saw 10 or x or whatever is pretty good it's kind of like saw 1.5 it's set between the first one and uh the first sequel Mm-hmm. And and it's it's kind of weird because um, he's kind of the hero of the film <laughs> with the way everything plays out. Um, as far as Silence of the Lambs, yeah, I mean that's iconic film, great great acting all around. Um, I think was that that was also Brian De Palma. Was that did he direct that one as well? Uh, let me uh. Let me check really quick. Uh, that was um, that was Jonathan Dem. Oh, Jonathan Demi. Yeah, okay. Demi, okay. yeah. Okay. Okay, I was mistaken. Um, yeah, and what? No, no mention of Buffalo Bill. <laughs> With <laughs> the the great uh, quotable, you know, put the lotion on your skin and uh, uh, was she a great big fat person? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's just an underrated character, and uh, you know you've made it when a scene from your film is parodied in another film or TV show. And of course, when Buffalo Bill is dancing around was parodied in one of the Jay and Silent Bob movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a it's an iconic film, and, and those, those are were both uh, great great choices to mention. All right, well, that will go ahead and uh, close things out here. We did, um, I thought we did a pretty good job covering some of our favorite Halloween songs and horror films, um, making up some good uh, Mount Rushmore's here. Um, before we go, though, let's talk about where uh, everyone can find us on social media and if we do have any other pods going on. Um, Ash, do you want to let us know where we can find you? Um, no, I mean, I'm on Facebook. My band's on Facebook. Um, I would like to plug my band, uh, Forging the Fable. Uh, we play around locally here, so we're not we're not famous, but we we like to get together on on the weekends and and play some songs just for the fun of it. But uh, that's that's pretty much what I've got. Okay, well, that, no, that's all. That's all good. Um, as for me, of course, you can usually find me here on the Pop Feed, not just with this uh, podcast, but also with uh, Pop Goes Classics, uh, as well as the video jukebox song of the day. I also take part in uh, Extreme Resurrection over on the PTV Wrestling Feed, where me and James Grunberg are going through the uh, WWE's version of ECW from 2006 to 2010. We are currently in the summer of 2007, um, coming out of uh, Vengeance, Night of Champions, and the whole Chris Benoit um, tragedy. So, uh, not the easiest topic to talk about, but um, but I think we did a 
fairly decent job of that as we continue on through the, through the summer of 07. Um, also, I do make a couple of appearances over on the North-South Connection, um, either with Cronoso or with um, Ryan Gray when he does his um, little previewings for the uh, for the PLEs. Um, and I will um, just give them a plug. If you've not subscribed to their YouTube channel, please do so. They do a lot of great stuff over there, um, long form and short form. So please uh, be sure to give them some love. Um, and also you can find me on the PTP Facebook group. Lots of good stuff there, including our uh, tournament that's currently going on where we are determining the greatest song of the 2000s. Uh, we are currently in round two. Uh, lots of uh, big matchups that have happened, some still to come. Um, Ashley, you've been uh, pretty heavily involved in uh, the voting of those matches. Um, has anything kind of stuck out, stuck out to you at this point? Um, kind of as we go through the second round, anything like any um, upsets you've seen or um, any song that you think might be a potential favorite? Oh, I don't know if I can call a favorite right now because the, the list is so expansive. Um, there's been some pretty brutal matchups uh, in the early going. Um, I kind of feel like maybe the tournament was too big to begin with, but I'm, I'm not a big fan of 2000s music. It's been pretty fun to uh, see the matchups and vote on as it's gone along so far. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, um, yeah, it was a, uh... It was quite a chore to collect all those songs, but um, <laughs> but it was but no, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and I've been enjoying it, kind of seeing everybody's um, where everyone kind of stands in their um, their taste of music. So, um, so if you're not a member of the PTV Facebook group, you know, let us know, we'll add you in, and then we can get in and vote. So uh, that's like I said, lots of big stuff still to come. Um, but with that said, we will go ahead and uh, wrap things up here. Um, thank you again, Ashley, for coming in. I know it was just you know kind of a you know just the two of us, but I thought we did a really good job with everything. Yeah, I think so too. Um, thank you for having me. Of course, and uh, thank all of you. Thank you to um, every one of you for listening. Uh, I am Steve Riddle. He is Ashley Cruz. This has been Making Matt Rushmore here on the PTP Pop Experience, and we will see you next time. Bye.